Starting a new uh, sermon series, Jesus, Gender, and Toxic Masculinity. Robin, was there anything I need to do? Okay. Um, a lot of uh, sign language going on here. Jesus, gender, and toxic masculinity. I was, I was coming to church and thinking about, I was thinking about you guys, and I was thinking, I love this church. And I was thinking, like, just personally, it's had such like a, like a healing effect on me as a participant in the church the past five years. And it's actually been the generator of a lot of, like, personal spiritual growth for me. And one of the areas for me that's been a, a place of growth is having an experience of talking to so many people who had um, issues surrounding gender or sexuality and like hearing their stories and you know, as a pastor and just as a friend and, and getting to think about my own experience growing up in Detroit. And, and it's like, it's like a, 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 and being on a staff that's, I'm the only man on the staff. It's like a total, I've never been in a setting remotely like that. And it's actually quite, it's quite, um, well, it's entertaining and, and, it's, uh, and it's enlightening. And there are times that I'm just, I, I'm like a flea on the wall and, and the rest of the staff starts talking. And it's like they don't realize there's a man in the room and they talk the way women talk about other men sometimes no one in the church. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is like interesting and, um, and humbling. So I grew up in the 1950s in Detroit, which was a really a period, it's hard to um, appreciate it if you weren't there, of very strict gender norms. So the men of that period were like warriors, workers, beer drinkers, and smokers. The women were homemakers, nurturers. They were just beginning to be pressured by the rise of the modern advertising industry run by men naturally to conform to like an impossible version of, of uh, female beauty. And so there's pressure to do makeup every day. Girdles? I remember my mom like working her way into girdles and, and hair rollers. Like I had two older sisters and they were like epic battles every night about whose hair rollers were whose. And here, I mean, it was, it was wow. My father's generation uh, was subjected to an extreme ideal of masculinity that was really designed to prepare them for combat. So 16 million men served in World War II and a huge cadre of those men returned with undiagnosed PTSD and the masculine ideal that they grew up under meant they couldn't share their pain with others, not even other vets. Um, divorce understandably skyrocketed post World War II. And so I realized that the, the, the masculinity ideal that I absorbed, and we ab absorb these things, we don't like sign up for them, they're just in the atmosphere, we absorb them was be a man, hide your pain, and don't show vulnerability. So by the late 1960s, I'm in high school, and the Cultural Revolution is in full swing. And like many other men of my generation, like I, I really wanted a different way to be a man. Like I wanted like, for example, a broader emotional range than various shades of hunger or various shades of anger. <laughs> like I wanted to be able to say I love you to my kids without getting an injection of Novocaine because it was like pulling teeth. 
the Jesus I encountered was right at that stage in my life when I was like looking for a different way of being a man. And, and the, the man that I met in Jesus in the Gospels, this was like blew my mind and was just so different than the masculine ideal that I grew up with. Like he, courage, yes, but his courage included being unafraid of human emotions, like his own and others. He, he in public, it was compassionate, it was brilliant, he was prophetic, like I started like a lifelong attachment to the Jesus I discovered in the Gospels. And yet, unbeknownst to me, like in the early 1970s, I, I got involved in a um, charismatic form of Christianity centered in Ann Arbor here, part of a big renewalist thing of the time. And, and that thing fell into what was, was, it was actually slowly drawn into what turned out to be a massive cultural reaction to the cultural revolution. Like too much, too far, too fast. Drug, sex, and rock and roll is too chaotic. We need to pull this in. There were great positives to that experience in that, in that charismatic form of community. There were lots of connections I had. That, there were men in small groups sharing their struggles with one, with one another. It was like very, in, in many respects, very healthy, but there were some, some negatives that attached to it. And one of the most significant was a faith-based return to rigid gender roles. And when I say rigid, I mean rigid. I mean, like, I, I, the first little book I wrote in 1982, the author, if you look at the author photo, I've got a god-awful mustache, and it looks like I'm literally sitting on a broomstick because I was instructed before the author photo not to smile because that was an indication of feminization the feminization of men, and that was like a bad thing. Yes, I kid you not. I, I, was, I was instructed not to attend my, um, the, the, um, we had um, five children, and for the two middle kids, I, I wasn't part of the labor and delivery experience because that was like the woman's domain and the men should be out in the waiting room with other men. So I'm talking about an extreme version of what now I would clearly say is a toxic approach to masculinity. And I went through a lot of grief in like the late 80s and early 90s, just decompressing with that, like sorting that out, sifting that out, uh, you know, ditching things. I would say today, I'm 67 years old, um, I can still notice the lingering effects of that 1950s brand of masculinity that I kind of absorbed. And it, it actually has made parts of my ego more fragile, not less fragile. So like it's harder for me to ask for emotional support. That's, that's, that's not resilience. Um, I, I lost my health insurance when I lost my job in 2014. It was surprisingly, surprisingly like emotionally hard. It was hard on my ego to be the covered spouse on my wife's um, insurance policy. I thought I was like over that kind of stuff. It was surprisingly emotionally difficult to move into her fantastic house in a fantastic part of Ann Arbor because my name wasn't on, on the mortgage because I wasn't, um, I didn't generate the wealth that, 
that made that was like someone else's house and I was like in the subordinate position. I was like, oh, I'm not as enlightened as I thought I was. To state the obvious, our categories and understandings of gender and related concepts like masculinity, which would be what does it mean in a given culture to be like a real man, these are socially constructed. Like, like language is socially constructed. You know, like God didn't invent all the various languages and give to all the different people. The humans constructed over time different languages. Language is a social construction. Gender is our understanding of masculinity, femininity. These are socially constructed phenomena. They vary from culture to culture. They change over time. Some cultures recognize more than two genders. Uh, the Mishnah, which is like an uh, ancient document, of, uh, it's an evolving document, the writings of the rabbis, which, which includes what's understood to be the oral tradition that came from Moses and was passed on from rabbi to rabbi. It's a really important part of what we now call Judaism noted seven genders in the, in the Mishnah by the rabbis. Augustine, who's like a really important figure in Christianity and the Western tradition, he was an African bishop, probably a, a person of color. He, 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 was, he was all messed up on sex because he, was very, he had a very loose life. And so you don't want to follow Augustine when it comes to sexual things and whatnot. He was, uh, he was wound up pretty tight. But on the issue of gender, there's some surprise things to say in his writings like um, uh, he he recognized that there were um, there were genders that were different than male and female and he responded to this as like this is a positive thing this is part of the glorious variety in creation um, he wasn't like a gender binary guy um, now many binaries meaning opposites you know two things to define a whole whole category of existence including male and female are like they're like gross simplifications of complex reality like they work for a certain set of people in the group often but they're they're really especially at a finer detail level that they're really gross simplifications of what's actually a very complex reality and it's like all binaries so many binaries are like that like like day and night it's either day or night, right? That's our instinct. Well, no, there's dawn, <laughs> there's dusk, and where the day-night binary doesn't really hold. And, you know, I think the earth is like never more beautiful than when you can't tell if it's day or night. You know, like when the sun is low on the horizon and the moon is out and the sky is like deep, dark blue. And like, I love that time. And if you were just plopped into a scene like that, you wouldn't know if it was dawn. You wouldn't know if it was dusk. It just is what it is. So our inflexible understandings of gender and, and masculinity in particular, you know, what's the ideal way of being a man in our society? Um, these things have really distorted our reading of scripture. And scripture is important to us. We, we uh, teach from scripture most every Sunday here at Blue Ocean. Um, see it as a real means of connecting with the divine. So I think it's important for us to look at this, especially because uh, our, we live in a country that's highly religious. 
And so many cultural trends in society have religious roots. So this is really important, uh, high-impact stuff. Today I want to remove a cataract on our lens for reading scripture. I just got um, diagnosed with having a very small cataract. That's a thickening of the uh, lens on your eye. It's an inevitable part of aging. Many of you have cataracts and don't even know it's starting. Nah, 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 nah. But um, eventually you have to get these things renewed or, or, or pulled off because uh, uh, you, you, it affects your vision. And there's a cataract on our reading of scripture that's called complementarity. Compl now, this is just a, a random survey. How many of you know roughly what the term complementarity means in a theological setting? Thank God, not too many of you. <laughs> so, um, it's a really important, influential thing. Um, and I'm going to take a little time talking about the complementarity myth. It's not compliment like I'm giving you a compliment, but compliment like you complement each other or whatever. So the background, for centuries, the Western church in particular embraced a very brazen form of patriarchy. Patriarchy just means rule. Patriarchy, the rule of men. It was the rule of men over women. But mainstream patriarchal thought in the church included like men can own women. And that's what marriage was. A man owned a woman. Um, it included, it was based on the fundamental assumption that men are superior to women. Okay, this is, this is like for, for centuries, this is the mainstream tradition in the Western church. Now, as equality became um, a widely accepted value in the 18th, 19th, into the 20th century, patriarchy morphed into a softer version called complementarity. And complementarity holds and I'm quoting from John Piper, who was a famous complementarian, wrote a book called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. If you see a book with that title, run. Um, <laughs> it goes, God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood. Sounds great, doesn't it? But, <laughs> but, the devil actually created the word but uses it quite frequently in theological contexts. <laughs> but is usually bad news for certain people. But different and complementary in function with male headship in the home and in the church. So that's a basic understanding of a complementarian view. It's really a theological strategy for defending male-only leadership while declaring male-female equality. If patriarchy is the pig, complementarity is the lipstick, to use a <laughs> charming metaphor. But it's the dominant view in the two largest sectors of Christianity, in Roman Catholicism and evangelism. It's the dominant interpretive lens for reading much of Scripture. So complementarity has been used as a lens to interpret, especially with, um, with big impact, um, the Adam-Eve story 
in, in, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And, and, and it makes claims about the importance, what's, what the claim of complement, a complementarian view of the Adam and Eve story is what's important about the Adam and Eve story is the difference between Adam and Eve. They're different from each other. That's what's significant and important. And this story with this reading is used as a foundation to assert the theological priority of gender differences as an absolute. Uh, to limit the role of women, especially in the church and in the home, to enforce gender norms and to um, make space for church stigmatizing policies against sexual minorities. So it's a big, massive impact, this thing. So James Brownson, he was the president of Western Theological Seminary in, in Holland. I actually um, crossed paths with James Brownson at the University of Michigan many years ago. Wrote a fabulous book, a little bit dry, called The Bible, Gender, and Sexuality. And the point of his book is to debunk the myth of complementarianism. And he, he, he deals with the Adam and Eve story in particular in a very helpful way. Let me just summarize briefly what he says in this book. One, he says, Scripture does not teach gender complementarity. This is a modern imposition on Scripture. He says, for example, in the story of Adam and Eve, Eve is suitable not because she's different from Adam, hence she can complement, complete Adam, but because she is similar. Like, Oh, right. Remember the story? First, God creates Adam and then notices that Adam is alone. It's kind of like a child story in the way it's told. And then God presents Adam with all the different creatures to see which of the creatures might be a good companion to Adam and one after another. And Adam's like, no, no. Then God at the, finally puts Adam to sleep and takes out of Adam's side. He takes Eve, presents her to Adam. Like, what do you think about this? And what does Adam say? Oh my gosh, she's so, she's so confident compliments me. She completes me. No, he was completely before, you know. Um, he says, at last, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. That's not difference. That's similarity that made her a suitable companion. Brownson also says that the term one flesh and the two became one flesh, that's a big complementarian understanding. It actually doesn't refer to sex in the Hebrew Bible, like hardly ever, but to a formation of a new kinship group. Like this is a story about kinship based on similarity, not a story about sex contingent on anatomical differences. Wow. Now, um, Brownson says something else that's also very helpful. He says, Scripture contains at least two strands on the issue of gender, two primary strands or traditions or schools of thought, if you will, on gender. The first strand assumes patriarchy, the rule of men over women, as like the norm. Um, the second strand anticipates the end of patriarchy, a time when male and female aren't actually part of being human in any significant way at all. And this was our reading today from Galatians. 
as many of you are baptized or baptized into Christ Jesus. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is like a sign of the new creation that Jesus, the Messiah, is bringing into our experience here in Nile. So the Bible reflects patriarchy, even, um, even asserts it in various ways, but also bears witness to the end of patriarchy. And Jesus is part of, the, of, of what's going on to usher in this new creation marked by the end of gender as a meaningful category and the end, therefore, of patriarchy. So when you remove this cataract of complementarity, you can see what's actually been there all along, which is Jesus was like a significant gender bender. Like anyone who encountered Jesus or read the early accounts of his life in the Gospels in his time and place would have said, wow, this guy is a gender Bender. This guy does not live up to or live in subjection to or enforce gender norms. Like he's, that's not what he's into at all. Now, there, there are many ways that actually that Jesus violated mo the modern American gender masculinity norms just because he was a Jewish man of a different period, you know. He was at ease with emotion as men were in that time. His own emotion, his other, other people's emotions. He, could, he wept freely in public. He could express his emotional pain to others, like his complaints in the Gospel of John. He does that, and it's a little bit like, ooh, you're not supposed to do that, Jesus, if you're really a strong man. But what I want to do is focus on three, I'd say more, a little bit more unique ways that Jesus, or significant ways, even theologically, that Jesus was a gender bender. First, Jesus didn't himself participate in marriage. And that's a really big deal because marriage in his era was a, was a blatant patriarchal institution. You couldn't separate patriarchy from marriage at that time. And it was part of his bearing witness to the dawning of a new creation that he didn't participate in marriage. The closest he came is he went to a wedding. <laughs> he didn't, as a rabbi, he didn't perform any marriage ceremonies as far as we know. He wasn't married so far as we know. There's one point where he's having a discussion with some people who are testing him with questions, trying to fault fine, and they're asking a you know, crazy story about a guy marries a, marries a wife, and the wife dies, and then he marries another woman, and she dies, and that happened seven times. Who's the guy married to when, when the new creation comes and the new age? And Jesus says, um, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And that phrasing represents the patriarchal understanding of marriage, that men married and women were given in marriage. The fa father owned the daughter, transferred ownership to the groom, and that was part of the rule of men over women. Jesus did not participate in that institution. I, and I was uh, widowed in 2012. Nancy C. Wilson, miss her to this day, thinking of her today, especially with those single mom um, scholarships. 
Uh, I'm very proud of Nancy Wilson. Just asked me sometime how awesome she was. I will tell you. Um, but I, I was widowed in 2012, and I, I, at that period of my life, I, I literally knew like hundreds of pastors who were peers to me, like who were lead pastors in established churches. <coughs> Excuse me. And I realized at that time, I did not know a single unmarried male pastor. And, you know, 98% of the pastors I knew were I did not know a single other unmarried pastor. And I was surprised at what a strange feeling it was not to be a married pastor in that evangelical setting. I, I kept my wedding band on for months because I kind of felt there was something wrong or almost like it actually felt to me like it was a little creepy to be an unmarried pastor as a man. Uh, that totally surprised me. Now, I think actually Jesus might have had a similar experience, if, if anything more intensely, as an unmarried rabbi. Because Jewish men were under an intense obligation to marry in that period. I mean, multiply and fill the earth was the first command of Torah, right? So an unmarried rabbi was a total oddity. So Jesus was not living up to his culture, culture's masculinity norms in a very key area. And then second, Jesus renounced um, violence entirely. And we may not see how this is a part of a masculinity norm, but it absolutely is. Um, and he didn't just renounce criminal violence, you know, like assault and battery, right? But violence as a means to right wrongs. Kind of like in our society, what would we think of the good use of violence? Jesus renounced that kind of violence. Now, he didn't let the threat of violence stop him, so there was no lack of courage in Jesus, but he renounced using violence even to advance a moral good, and he was in a situation where the, his nation was under intense you know, military occupation, where like the urge to do that is, as a moral good is very powerful. I mean, normally the oppressed have every right to fight for freedom, um, it's certainly an American ideal. And certainly in Jesus' era, leading or fighting in an army to defend the freedom of your people was absolutely part of a masculine ideal. Men were made to be warriors as needed. And the heroes of old in the Hebrew Bible are people like Abraham and Samson and David, and they were all warlords. And their warlording, there was no ambivalence about it. So in a very real, now whether this is like a universal principle or if it was for his, that, that's all debatable, but it was absolutely part of his project. So in a very real sense, Jesus refused to participate in what would have been understood as an obligation of his gender and an expression of masculinity. The men in particular who followed Jesus were signing up to violate masculinity norms of their day and time. But the third thing, and this is the best, and this is probably the most significant with more 
a more deep significance because it has to do with God more directly. Jesus identified with the divine feminine tradition of Israel, which Lady Wisdom in Greek known as Sophia. We don't hear so much about this in the Western Christian tradition. Do you think that the Western Christian tradition is dominated by men at the area of leadership might have anything to do with that? But it is absolutely part of the tradition. Briefly, Israel's vision of God obviously is monotheistic, one God. But there were many and actually varied strands of tradition to depict or describe or to bear witness to the divine in Israel. And these strands would not be ones that you could easily reconcile. And Israel in general was just totally at ease with many and varied voices in their tradition that that what gave them things to argue about. And it was, it was like a unifying thing in Israel to have these varied voices. We're talking about God not even saying the name of God. How could we expect that we could just put it into words in a way that everyone could agree on that would make logical sense? This is just a Jewish way of, of engaging theology. And the, the Yahweh tradition, the Yahweh would be the name for God of Exodus that, that you know, brought the people out of bondage. In the Yahweh tra tradition, God is ready to go off to war as needed. But there was an alternate tradition under the umbrella of what we would say divine wisdom, or in Greek it would be Sophia, understood and depicted as a feminine presence, like dancing, creating, mysterious, a kind of seductive presence, a peaceful, gentle, and, and interestingly, never resorting to violence. So there's an entire like, section of scripture, a series of books in, in scripture that are regarded as wisdom literature, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the book of Job and others. And, and this vision of God as Sophia is particularly prominent in this part of the, of the biblical canon, especially Proverbs chapter 8, which is an extended discourse on lady wisdom. Read it sometime, it's really interesting. Jesus often identified himself with this Sophia tradition. So he's facing some critics at one point who challenged his methods and teachings and people from John the Baptist disciples who were unsettled by some of the things he was saying and doing. And, and he, he makes some comments about criticism that he receives in general. And he says, wisdom is proved right by her children. And what he means in that context is he was embodying wisdom, gendered female, and either his followers or his deeds were her children. Very interesting. The letter of James, James is a letter in the New Testament. It actually has more of the voice of Jesus than any of the other letters. The letter of James, um, probably written by the brother of Jesus, one good option, contrasts the wisdom from below with the wisdom from above and says this about the wisdom from above, divine wisdom, which in Jewish thought was, under, was pictured as feminine. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, 
and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Just in this wisdom tradition, there was completely nonviolent understanding of divine action. When St. Paul, who's writing of the folly of the cross in 1 Corinthians, it's the strangeness to the ancient mind of a, of a Messiah who renounced violence but suffered it on the cross, which is all very counterintuitive. Paul contrasts the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God and concludes that whole thing at the end by saying, Jesus is the wisdom of God. And, and in his understanding, wisdom, in, to the extent it was gendered, was gendered female. Jesus, uh, he is the wisdom and the power of God. Show us your wisdom. Show us your power, O oh God, is one of our songs. And like Jesus, Jesus is showing a, like an unexpected understanding of God, and, and it's feminine. Uh, when Jesus speaks of himself as the hen who gathers her chick under under her wings, when he's looking over Jerusalem, he's actually invoking an image that fits Lady Wisdom, who in Proverbs 8 is gathering her children into her, into her house. Um, now, the Eastern Christian tradition is much more comfortable with this than, than, than we are in the West. And uh, there's, a t there's a cathedral in Istanbul dedicated to um, holy wisdom, Hagia Sophia. Um, and get this, there's a Russian Orthodox icon from the Middle Ages called Christ as Holy Wisdom. Google it and you can pull it up. Christ as Holy Wisdom. And Christ appears as female or, or we'd say gender fluid. I've got a few copies here. I'll, you can pass that around. This is like from the, I don't know, 14th century, some, something like that. So this is not some, some, you know, liberal 21st century rendering. This was part of the ancient tradition. There, there she is, Jesus, and is identified as Christ in the, in the icon itself, but obviously looks either female or absolutely looks gender fluid. What is, what's the significance of all this? Well, you know, we're, we're trying to form a healthy connection to God. And part of that process is to separate the wheat from the chaff of our, of our vision, of our understanding of God. Like, what's this human construct? And what is like an intuition to the, the actual divine presence? That's, that's an essential thing to form a healthy connection to God. And I think the significance is God is not the author. God is not the enforcer. God is not the preserver. God is not the conserver of our gender norms. That's just not, God's not into that particularly our versions of masculine and feminine ideals. That's, just, that's not God's concern with humanity at all. And, and when these things are used to oppress or to pressure us, I, I, many of us have felt that pressure very personally and very painfully. Um, when these things are used to oppress or pressure us, when they become like external ideals by which we are judged, or more often by which we judge ourselves 
in our actions and how we measure up or how we judge others, you know, they become like a yoke. They become like shoes that are two sizes too small or pants that are too tight or a school uniform that's, that's too hot in a September heat wave, but you've got to wear it anyway. So we can step back and we can, like, notice this about the culture and the society that we're part of and, and the bad effects on us. We can notice and just name that, those bad effects on us and on others. And, and we can remove them, you know. We can remove these things. We can drain them of any supposed authority in our minds. You know, there's a, there's a mantra that's useful for this sort of work, spiritual work. It's, you're not the boss of me. I see you, I notice you, you're parked inside my head, but you're not the boss of me. You're like a, you're like kind of a daffy uncle that's part of the family and you're adorable in certain ways, but I'm, I'm not going to make you the executor of my will. You know? <laughs> you're not the boss of me anymore. You know, I think of these things as like instructions that come with a piece of Ikea furniture and it turns out that in the Ikea factory back in Sweden or whatever, uh, it was the dark period and, and people were like depressed and not on their game and someone put the wrong instructions in the wrong box and you open the box and you're trying to do the instructions and, and that you're trying to make the instructions work but it's very frustrating and then you realize, oh, there's been a mistake. I can pitch the instructions, you know. I can figure it out myself, I can call the, you know, 1-800 emergency help me line. Let's do a meditation exercise. Um, we'll take two or three minutes for this, and it's, it's like, think of this as like, I don't know, theater class, you're not going to be asked to get up, get up and do anything, that could be freaky, but... Um, to use our imagination in a particular scenario that I'll, uh, that I'll prompt us with. So first of all, if you want to close your eyes, if you're comfortable with that, or just maintain a soft focus if you'd like to keep your eyes open, and take a couple of deep breaths for starters into the nose and out through the mouth. Get comfortable in your chair. Now, as you can, picture yourself in a room sitting comfortably with a friend or a loved one or someone you trust. This could be a real person. This could be an imaginary person. This could be an ancestor who's gone on before you. Picture yourself in a room sitting comfortably and just take a little time to imagine that scene, that setting, a really great space, that person sitting near you. You're remarkably at ease and comfortable in this setting. Take some time with that. Now here's the scenario. 
it turns out that earlier in the day, with, without really thinking, you put on a wool sweater, let's say over like a cotton t-shirt, only it's too warm for the sweater. Besides, you're slightly allergic to wool, and it's making it kind of itchy, but you know how sometimes you're chewing a piece of gum too long and you realize like an hour and a half later, why am I still chewing this gum? My jaw hurts. And you, what a relief to just get rid of the gum. Something like this is happening with this sweater. You're not quite aware what the cause of your discomfort is. You got so used to it. So just in your imagination, imagine that situation, what that kind of discomfort would feel like that you haven't quite identified the cause of. And just to close, imagine this scenario. You say to your friend, is it hot in here? I'm feeling warm and kind of itchy. And your friend says, I was wondering why you were wearing that sweater. I thought you were actually allergic to wool. Why don't you just take it off? And then you feel the relief of just removing that sweater at your friend's urging. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Just close with a prayer, O oh God, in you we live and move and have our being. And we cry out to you for your assistance in freeing us from things which have been imposed on us which are not from love or not of love and do not produce love. Holy Spirit, come, work in our hearts, work in our minds, work in our bodies to accomplish your good purposes in and through us. Amen. Amen. Amen.